Once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 6. As we work our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. Last week we started John 6 and um, we saw that Jesus performed a miracle. Now, that's not unique. Jesus performed a lot of miracles in his ministry. What made this miracle unique was that it's recorded in all four Gospels. And uh, that alone should tell us that the Holy Spirit considers it an extremely important miracle. So important he wanted it recorded four times. We're a little thick-headed. Uh, God says something just once should be enough. Often it's like, no, got to say it. When he says something four times, you better perk up and pay attention, okay? But uh, I think that... In my mind, the reason that he had this miracle recorded in each of the Gospels was so that we would really study it and never forget the lessons he is teaching us through it. And I think primarily, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that, listen, impossible problems are God's specialty. Um, now listen, as we come to John chapter 6, as we have said we have now entered into the final year of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. And uh, as such, we see him withdrawing from public ministry more and more to spend time alone in communion with his father and his disciples. And uh, there are several reasons for this, for these withdrawals. First of all was the growing hostility of Jesus' enemies toward him. Uh, it was really simmering. And uh, rather than provoke them to try to murder him before the appointed time, well, he just simply withdrew to keep things a little quiet. Also, though, uh, he needed to prepare himself physically and uh, no doubt mentally uh, and spiritually for the cross. And so uh, he would spend a lot of time alone with his father during this period, yeah, gathering strength and so on. But... Look, primarily, I think, as we look at John 6, uh, the reason the Lord now is trying to spend more time with his disciples is because he wants to, to prepare them to take over the ministry after his departure. If we take a composite look at the other, uh, all the Gospels, we see that the primary reason in John 6 that Jesus wanted to get alone with his disciples Prior to, feed, prior to the feeding of the 5,000 miracle was because he had sent them out two by two, the apostles, preaching the gospel. Again, he's preparing them. He wants them to get some practice out there now on their own, preaching the gospel, ministering to people. So he sends them out, Luke 9, uh, verses 1 and 2. And uh, verse 10, they come back. It says, And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done, then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city of Bethsaida. So Jesus decided to withdraw with his disciples to a remote area on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, not far from Bethsaida. And uh, they crossed the, the uh, Sea of Galilee from the west. They were in the area of Capernaum, uh, which is northwest. They crossed it by boat and came to the area of Bethsaida. The plan, as we said last week, we're still kind of reviewing, was to spend some time resting with his disciples. That was the plan. 
<laughs> in life, our plans are not always realized. And uh, that's not how it worked out for Jesus and his disciples. Mark tells us in chapter 6, So they departed and came to this deserted place by boat, by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing from the area of Capernaum. And many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities, ran to the area of Bethsaida, about three miles. And they arrived before them and came together to him. So the crowd knows where Jesus and his disciples are going. And uh, they uh, raced around the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. And as they're passing through villages and towns, People see a, see a crowd running. Well, where are you going? What's going on? What's happening? You know, Jesus is going to be landing over here with his disciples. Jesus. Oh. And then you know, more and more people join the group. So by the time they got there, they beat Jesus and his disciples. But the crowd was about, well, we were told 5,000 men plus women and children, upwards of 20,000 people, all waiting for Jesus to minister to them and to teach them and so on. Now, it is true, as we pointed out last week, John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25 indicates that there are a lot of folks that follow Jesus' ministry uh, for not the purest reasons. Uh, they were thrill-seekers. They were thrill-seekers. And uh, they liked him watching him do miracles and doing all kinds of stuff. So, you know, they really weren't following him for the right reason. However, guys, and we said this last time, I believe the vast majority of these people, were simply desperate to be healed. They were desperate to be made whole, which became the basis for the first main point in our outline, the desperation of the multitudes. John 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, miracles which he performed on those who were, listen, diseased, diseased. See, he was the only one in the whole country, no doubt in the whole world, that could give them any hope of being healed from a severe disease. Uh, as we said last week, medical science back then was little more than home remedies and superstitions. Uh, and because of it, uh, healing, the healing of serious diseases was almost non-existent. And so people were desperate uh, to be healed. If they had something very serious that no doctor could heal them of, uh, they were very desperate. And when they heard that Jesus was healing incurable diseases, uh, it gave them hope. And so they came to him. And they came to him by the thousands because they wanted desperately for him to heal their bodies and make them whole. Well, as we said last time, it's in the nature of God to show compassion uh, to desperate, hurting people. And so the passage moves naturally from the desperation of the multitudes to our second main point, the compassion of the Savior. Verse 3, And when Jesus went up on the mountain, this would be one of the bluffs overlooking the Sea of Galilee, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him. So we know from Matthew's gospel, chapter 14, verse 14, it says, When Jesus went out and saw a great multitude, uh, he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. 
And again, the Greek word translated moved with compassion literally means to have one's inner being stirred. Uh, it's a stronger word, much stronger Greek word than the word for simple sympathy. Uh, it's a word that you can have sympathy for somebody and not lift a finger to help them. This is a Greek word that means not only do you have compassion, sympathy, but it motivates you to act on their behalf. Someone has said that the word compassion comes from a root that means to get into the skin of another, to put yourself in their place, to feel what they're feeling, and, and, and to, to the purpose for which is to then want to then help them. Folks, that's what the incarnation was all about. We blew it, mankind, I should say, in the Garden of, of Eden, and we were doomed to spend eternity separated from God. But God didn't just have sympathy on us. He had compassion. And it caused him to move on our behalf and eventually to act, literally crawl into the skin of humanity to become a man, to die for the sins of mankind. So we see the desperation of the multitudes, the compassion of the Savior. And last week, we just started our third and final main point, the preparation of the disciples. And first of all, remember now, he is Prepare. This is why he's withdrawing from public ministry more and more, although the crowd still find him and he ministers to them. But the goal is to start shifting now from public ministry to the private, uh, you know, the private times of building into his disciples because they're going to be taking over the ministry when he goes back to his father. And they needed, first sub point under that main point, they needed to learn some lessons in faith. And so in verse 5, we read, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Of course, of course he knew. Guys, by this point in his ministry, now again, we're about a year from the cross, Jesus had already done so many miracles. I mean, he had healed so many people with, of incurable diseases. Uh, he had cast out so many demons. He had raised the dead. He also had turned water into wine, proving that he could make, you know, drink out of so, you know, something that, that was not originally in a certain form. He could make it into something else. And you'd think that by, as we said last time, you'd think that by this time, since the disciples had seen him do all these miracles, right? Every time an impossible, quote-unquote, situation presented itself, you'd think they would have got excited. Because Jesus, he excelled in impossible situations. That, that's who he was, right? That's why he came to, to uh, fix or to solve in an impossible situation. We were hopelessly lost and separated from God because of sin. And no human being could have corrected that. That's why God became a man, because only God can work the impossible. And you would have thought that by this time, when an impossible situation presented itself, the disciples would have gotten excited. Oh boy, I don't know what he's going to do. These folks have been on here all day. We can't send them to get something detailed. Faith on the way. I wonder how Jesus is going to solve this one. And then we got excited to see the Lord because only he could have fixed it, right? No, instead their first impulse was to send people away to what? 
listen to the world to buy food. Literal food, go into the villages and towns, buy yourself bread. But what's the Holy Spirit communicating here to us? Here are the disciples, men of God, are sending, want to send people away from the Lord into the world that they might eat. God help the churches that are doing that very thing. When the people with severe problems come in, well, we, we can't really fix that. Uh, you better go to Professor So-and-so or to psychologist whoever. Because, uh, you know, we, we, we don't have the answers here. You have Jesus, don't you? Oh, no, maybe you don't. There's a lot of churches that don't have Jesus, okay? And I think that's the big problem. That's why they send people away to the world. Look, the disciples needed some lessons in faith, guys. If they were going to continue the work that Jesus had begun after he would ascend back to his father, and Jesus knew that. He knew they weren't ready. He knew they weren't ready to go out right now. I mean, he's sending them out a little bit to get them acquainted and acclimated to a ministry and so on. But right now he knew that they weren't ready to take over when he was gone. That's why he wanted to give them a little on-the-job training. We read in Matthew 14, verses 15 to 16, Once again, when it was evening, the disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. At this point, I'm convinced he turned to Philip. In John chapter 6, verse 5, and said to Philip, one of the apostles, um, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And of course, this he said to test him, because Jesus knew what he would do. Well, Philip answered, and uh, you know, he said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. And uh, Philip was one of those guys that was a numbers guy, you know, kind of, kind of a slide rule for a brain. Would look at a problem and start the, the, the thing would start clicking in his brain, you know, the numbers would start crunching and, you know, oh, we, we can't do it. We don't have money to bank for this. Okay, well, sometimes God asks us to take a step in faith, all right? But as we said last week, guys, a denarius was the equivalent to a day's wage for a soldier or a common blue-collar worker back then, what we call a blue-collar worker. Uh, and so 200 denarii was about seven months' wage for an average working man. And the reason Philip mentions that figure, I believe, why did he say 200 denarii is not enough to give each a, a little, there's 20,000 people here. I mean, 20, it's, you know, 200 denarii is not enough to give everyone a little taste of food, all right? Uh, the reason I believe he mentioned that figure was because uh, maybe Judas, who was the treasurer of the group, had given a financial report sometime that day earlier uh, explaining that that's the amount that was in the group treasury. So Philip knew that and uh, said, well, Lord, you know, we've got 200 denarii in uh, the group treasury, but what is that with so many? Uh, we can't, we, there's no way we can do this. But then the Lord caught the disciples completely off guard by saying, they do not need to go away. <laughs> you give them something to eat. And in the Greek, it's emphatic. You give them something to eat. I say, you do it. The Lord assured them that there was no need 
to send the multitudes away? I mean, why should the people leave the one who, as the psalmist said in Psalm 145, verse 6, opens his hand and supplies the desire of every living thing? Didn't they know that by now? Didn't they understand who they were in the presence of every day? The one, they knew their own scriptures. They were standing in the presence of the one who opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. John 6, verse 8, one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what is that with so many? So why'd you bring it up? All right. Uh, what is that with so many? Five loaves, two fish. Wow. Yeah, what indeed? What indeed? <laughs> we all remember the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, and we know from other passages it was Jesus. In the beginning, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. And the Greek word for created is the Hebrew word bara, which means to bring into existence something out of nothing. <laughs> the Lord Jesus didn't need five atoms and two small molecules to create the entire universe. And so nothing is too small or insignificant for him to use to do something great through seeing, listen, as he didn't need anything to create everything in the first place. Now, please understand, this was a sack lunch, okay, belonging to a young boy who had come to hear Jesus preach that day, a lunch that his mom had probably pre prepared for him that morning. Little did she realize that lunch was going to go a long way. But she probably had prepared him, that, that for him, that consisting of five barley crackers, excuse me, five barley biscuits or crackers, uh, and two small pickled fish, like sardines. Guys, this was a sack lunch. And I say that because I've seen biblical movies, and, you know, I don't watch them much because they aggravate me. <laughs> they take such liberties, and they don't do their homework. But in one of these movies I saw, this very miracle was being portrayed. And Jesus, you know, worked this miracle, and they started pouring baskets out of one-and-a-half to two-pound loaves of round bread. And, you know, fish, raw fish, two- to three-pound fish on the ground. No, it was a sack lunch. Guys, the lunch was the five barley crackers or biscuits. Not, not giant loaves. It was a lunch. That was the lunch. The sardines uh, gave a little moisture, you know, to, you know, when you ate. But the lunch was the barley. Let me just say this to you. A, a, a young boy's sack lunch, consisting of this amount of food, sure. A small amount of food, to be sure. And certainly from a human perspective, totally inadequate to feed so many people. But folks, that's the whole point of the story. The whole point the Spirit of God is trying to communicate to us through this miracle is that with men, it was impossible. 
but with God all things are possible. There's so many lessons sprinkled throughout this this passage. Uh, One of them is, if you didn't realize that, barley was the grain of poor people. So here God used a poor person who was also a boy, not a scholar, intellectual. God used a nobody to do one of the greatest miracles in the Bible or to assist in one of the greatest miracles in the Bible. God can use anybody. And over and over he reinforces that to us in so many different stories, right? So that's one lesson. You don't have to, who am I that I could serve God? Uh, nobody like me. Hey, but we nobodies are at the top of the list. Because Paul said he chooses the weak, the foolish, the base, the nobodies to do his greatest work through. Okay? We're, we're on the top of the list because we're nobodies. He wants to get all the glory. But there's a, there's a couple of other very important lessons. There's many. I'm just giving you a couple that come to my mind. A couple other very important principles that the Holy Spirit wants to teach us through this story. The first one is fight the temptation to look at your situation through the eyes of flesh and not through the eyes of faith. Whenever I try to teach this point, what always comes to mind is the story out of 2 Kings 6 with Elisha. Elisha was a prophet in those days. And in those days, a prophet in Israel, and in those days Israel was at war with Syria, uh, the leader of which was a a man named Ben-Hadad. And, uh, you know, the king of Israel and the king of Syria hated each other. In fact, the king of Syria would often lay ambushes for the king of Israel and his armies, uh, knowing that this was the route they would often take to get places. And so he purposely uh, hid his soldiers that they were going to pounce out at one point, take them by surprise, on ambush, right? But every time they laid one of these ambushes, God spoke to Elisha, who was very connected to the Lord, and said, look, tell the king of Israel not to go that way. Uh, Ben-Hadad laid an ambush. Well, this happened so many times, Ben-Hadad figured he had a spy in his midst. One of his guys was working for the king of Israel. So he calls his generals in and says, guys, look, (laughs) I know what's going on. Fess up. One of you guys is working for the king of Israel. Because how would he know? How how does he keep knowing where our ambushes are? And they said, king, look, (laughs) we're loyal. But there's a prophet down there named Elisha. Man, you can't even speak to your wife in your own bedroom, but what he doesn't know about it. So the king said, where is he? Well, last word we got was in Dothan. Let's go. Marched all night, surrounded the city of Dothan. When, uh, when Elisha's servant went out that morning to get uh, water, he walks out and sees that the entire city of Dothan is surrounded by Syrian soldiers and chariots. He runs back in and says, Master, Master, we've had it. The, t- the, the town is surrounded by the Syrians. I love what Elisha said. Don't be afraid. Those that are with us are more than those who are with them. Lord, open his eyes. And he walked outside, and now he saw (laughs) that surrounding the entire Syrian army were giant soldiers with flaming chariots, God's army of angels. And the situation went from 
Alas, we've had it too. Alas, they've had it. <laughs> Apply that to any problem or crisis you're going through. Don't look at it through the eyes of flesh because you'll be brought down, you'll be defeated, you will have no hope. You remember who you serve. And greater is he that is with you than he that is in the world. And you trust God. You pray. And pray if you have to. God, open my eyes because I need to see that you have this under control. Of course he does. So the first thing, and that's what we want to, the disciples looked at the situation impossible as it was from a human standpoint. They looked at it from, with human eyes and they were demoralized. Of course, Jesus saw it through the eyes of faith. And secondly, this is important, guys. Give to God first, and he will provide everything you need to live. Now, this illustration comes out of 1 Kings 17, and the story revolves around a prophet named Elijah who was a predecessor to Elisha. Elisha took over for him. The kingdom of Israel had gotten so bad under the leadership of King Ahab and Jezebel, his wife, that they had gotten into such horrendous, immoral, godless, wicked practices that God sent the prophet Elijah to the court of the king and said to him, Neither will there be, there won't be any rain until I say so. But he was representing God. And then he took off. And God Stop the rain. After a while, crops began to die. After a while, people began to starve. It got desperate in Israel. So God sent the prophet Elijah north to the city of Zarephath to a widow. God told him, go there. I'm going to instruct her to take care of you. So when he gets to Zarephath, he sees this widow gathering up some sticks. And she said to him, uh, excuse me, he said to her, uh, could you please get me a cup of water? I'm thirsty. And so as she turns to get the water, he says, also, could you please bring me back just a little piece of bread? I'm really hungry. And she said, well, sir, I've only got a small little handful of flour left, little oil. I'm, I'm, I'm picking up some sticks to make a fire to make a little thing of bread that my son and I can eat, and then we're going to die of starvation. You know what? Elijah, who represented God, know what he said? Don't fear. Go and feed me first. Give to me first. And she did. She went and she used whatever she was left, whatever was left. She made bread, gave it to Elijah. And they said, and after you've given to me, make for yourself. Go make bread for yourself and your son. So she goes back to where the flour was, which should have all been used up, and she's got enough to make more bread, enough oil to make the bread for her and her son. This kept happening over and over again. Every time she went, there was enough flour and enough oil to make bread. In this way, God protected her and her son from the famine. Why? Because she gave to God first. Elijah represented a servant of God to give to Elijah whoever gives to what did Jesus say? Um, 
you can't give to one of my disciples without giving to me. Give God first. The little boy gave what he had, wasn't much, gave it to the Lord and wound up eating in abundance because of it. Of course, we all remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else you need will be given to you. I've told you this. I see some new people, but when Cindy and I first got into ministry, um, you know, I wasn't making anything from the church, maybe a thousand a month. And I had a family, and there was a lot of times we just didn't really have any money for, for stuff, you know, although God always provided. But my point is that every uh, Sunday morning, I would uh, write our checkout. Uh, you know, we would give 10% to the Lord, you know, and then to the week if somebody needed something extra and we could do it, we'd help them. But I always wrote the checkout before church, before I ever saw the offering. There was a lot of offerings. I couldn't take a full check. Sometimes I couldn't take a check at all. But I, I didn't want that to affect my giving to God. So I wrote the check out, our tithe to the Lord, put it in the offering uh, bag, and then Monday morning I'd sit and do the bills. That, that's how I always did it. And I remember we were coming into a, right about this time of year, actually, and um, we had no money. I mean, things, I don't know what happened if the car needed tires or had broken down and we had to take whatever little money we had and, and fix the car. We had no money. And I never ever. Cindy and I never uh, let our, our needs be known to people. We, we always just prayed. And so we just prayed. We had no money. And of course, Christmas was coming. And we had, forget getting the kids presents. I mean, we, we had no money for some, some necessities. But we just prayed and, uh, and, and, and thank God. And, and guys, I should have wrote it. I should have journaled it. I didn't. I don't remember how he did it. I just remember about the 28th of the month Looking back, how God not only provided all of our needs, he also provided uh, money for Christmas gifts for the kids. He did exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. I believe because we gave him first. We, we put him first. There, there, that's a very powerful principle. In fact, in the Old Testament, it's called the tithe, giving God first and god said if you give me first of your crops and of all that i give to you i will bless you in return there's a proverb that i've never forgotten proverbs eleven twenty four and 5 there is one who scatters yet increases more and there is one who withholds more than is right but it leads to poverty the generous soul will be made rich and he who waters will also be watered himself. In other words, give, and it will be given back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. God will give back to you. Put him first. And so, guys, when it came to Jesus preparing his disciples to take over the ministry upon his returning to the Father, first of all, they needed lessons in faith, and he was trying to teach them that. Also, they needed to learn the, sufficient, the sufficiency of Jesus to meet needs. Now, in Matthew 14, verse 18, we read how Jesus said, Bring them, talking about the five loaves and the two fish, bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. 
I'm convinced that the reason we don't see more in the way of miracles happening today is because we're not, listen, bringing to the Lord and giving him our resources. In other words, our time, our talents, our money to be used for him, by him for his glory. I know that some would say immediately, but I don't have much to give him. How can he do anything with it? Did this young man have much to give the Lord? This boy have much to give to the Lord? He only had a small sack lunch. Was the Lord able to use it in a great way? Yes. Yes. One pastor put it well. He said, and I quote, Listen carefully. It's not what we don't have to give to God. That's the problem. It's what we do have but refuse to give to him to use for his kingdom. That's the problem. I don't, I don't have much. How can God use it, people say? Well, this little boy didn't have much, but what he did have, he was willing to give to the Lord for him to use. And Jesus multiplied it and fed thousands. David didn't have much, only a sling and a rock, but David offered them to God, and he used them to bring down a giant and give, give victory to the people of God. Moses, he didn't have much when God sent him to deliver Israel from Egypt. God said to him, what's in your hand? Moses responded, a staff. God said, that's what I'll use to deliver my people. Again, it's not what we don't have to offer God that keeps us from being used. It's what we do have and don't offer that keeps us from being used by him. End quote. Think about that. Very important. John 6, verse 10. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so men sat down in number about 5,000, plus women and children, again, about 20,000 people. Uh, it was Passover time. We know that. The Gospels tell us that, which means it was in the spring of the year. In the spring of the year, Israel is loaded with green grass and wildflowers that are abundant, okay? So here's a picture, guys, of Jesus, the good shepherd, who makes his sheep sit down, but the Greek is, the word literally means to recline or to lay down on one side, Reclining on your side. So here we see a picture of the good shepherd um, making the sheep lie down in green pastures as he prepares to feed them and satisfy them. What a beautiful um, picture of Psalm 23, verse 2, right? He makes me to lie down. He, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Um, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, Mark tells us that he commanded his disciples to make the people recline in groups of 50s and 100s. And this was just simply to facilitate the disciples moving up and down aisles uh, to get to all the people to pass out the food Jesus was about to make. So John 6, verse 10, had them sit down in the green grass and so on. And verse 11, and Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, let me stop there. It's interesting to see the cooperation between Jesus and his disciples here. Listen, he manufactured the food, they distributed it to the multitudes. Don't ever forget that. What people need, listen, what people need, we can't manufacture. They need life. Of course, here, they ate physical bread, which is a staple, by the way. Synonymous with life, right? But the Holy Spirit is using us to teach a spiritual lesson. What people need, which is spiritual life, 
We can't manufacture. Only the Lord can do that. Only he can work the miracle. Only he can bring new life to a person. But when he gives us new life, guess what? He allows us then to help in the work by giving others what he has given to us, the bread of life. That's going to become pretty significant near the end of this chapter. He's going to launch into a whole teaching on that very subject. But don't forget this, guys. We are not in the manufacturing (laughs) business. We are in the distribution business. And I say that because there's a lot of churches that think they're in the manufacturing business. And they're trying to manufacture food for people to eat when really it's just giving to them, listen, the wisdom of man and not the word of God. The wisdom of man can't bring life to anyone. Only the word of God, the bread of life, can do that. But they don't trust the Bible. They don't respect the power of God's word. They don't really think it has the power to change lives. And so again, they're sending people off to the world. Where they feed on worldly wisdom, which doesn't heal them. It makes them sicker in their spirit. The word filled... And they were all filled. The Greek word means glutted. (laughs) That's pretty filled. Like I was at Thanksgiving a few days ago. Yeah, glutted, okay? So it's wrong to be, it's wrong to eat to to that point. It's wrong to be glutted. Well, Jesus allowed these people to eat till they were glutted. I mean, sometimes it's okay. Special occasion, I'm not saying every day. You think it was wrong, have your salad. I mean, you know, on Thanksgiving, I don't care. Don't begrudge me, because, you know, I like meat. I like to eat, you know, or things. Yeah, okay. Uh, Verse 12. So when they were filled, glutted, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. God's very frugal, and he doesn't waste anything, all right? Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had Eaten. Did you ever wonder why 12 baskets were filled? Not 11 or 13, but 12 were filled with the fragments. The, the, it says the barley. The fish, you wouldn't want to carry fish around. Uh, in that class. So apparently the fish had all been eaten. But the, the barley loaves were crackers, were, were in abundance. But, but why 12 baskets? I think you probably figured it out. Uh, there were 12 baskets because there was 12 doubting apostles who didn't believe Jesus could do anything to feed so many. Oh, Lord, we know you can do a lot, but that is pretty, yeah, come on. Uh, I think it just goes beyond you. Oh, man. How many Christians think, they'll never say it, but they think it. They pray with such fervor over a cold and are so defeated over cancer. I mean, is our God able? Or is he not, Right? You know, 12 baskets full of bread for 12 doubting apostles who didn't believe Jesus could really feed that many and encouraged him to send the multitudes away. Well, he responded, thankfully, to their doubts by taking a small offering of food and multiplied it so that everyone ate, listen, as much as they wanted. That's going to become a very spiritual, a very important spiritual point as we come to the end of the chapter. And now, guys, they were glutted. The 12 baskets were filled with fragments, one for each apostle. This was not only a lesson in God's power, but also in his sufficiency. How that 
He not only supplies what we need, he often gives us exceedingly abundantly more than we need. Why? So that we can share it with others. So that we can be a channel through which God uses us, that the blessings he's given us that are just spilling over our lives, we can share with others. My cup runs over. So what do you do with all that run over? You share it with those around you, right? Whatever that means, whatever God's blessing you with. He is sufficient. A lesson that Jesus reinforced to his disciples by make, making each of them carry around a basket of surplus food from what he had multiplied from the lunch that they, well, what is this among so many? He showed them that, right? And each of them had to, and the Greek is a, a, like a, um, a hamper basket, uh, you know, not, not real deep, and, but, but uh, you know, something you would put clothes in, okay, a clothes basket, you know. Uh, that, that's what the image is. Each of them had to carry a basket full of bread around for the next few days. And that's what they ate from. To reinforce the lesson, guys, not only will I supply what you need, what you ask for, I will give you exceedingly abundantly more than you need. And you know why? I want you to understand I'm sufficient. I, you know, we are barely conquerors through him who loves us. We are what? More than conquerors. It's always the superlatives. God always speaks to us in superlatives when it comes to how he wants to bless us and provide for us and so on. What a great lesson for the next few days as they ate leftovers. And we're reminded of the sufficiency of Jesus to meet every need and to solve every problem. And here's a little side question. Where was Jesus' basket? He didn't have a basket. Twelve baskets, twelve apostles. So where did he eat from? Where was his bread? What do you think? The apostles had to what? Share. They had to give back to Jesus what he had given to them. Oh, isn't that what we do with our finances? Not that God needs, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying God needs us. God won't eat if we don't, you know, give, give our money. No. But the principle is there. They had to give to Jesus for him to eat out of, what if, out of what he had given to them. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, Jesus still has compassion on the hungry multitudes, and he still wants, uh, he still says to his church, give them something to eat. How easy it is for us to send people away, to make excuses, um, to plead a lack of resources. Jesus asks that we give him all that we have and let him use it as he sees fit. A hungry world is feeding on empty substitutes while we deprive them of the bread of life. When we give Christ what we have, no matter how small that is, we never lose. We always end up with more blessing than when we started, end quote. Guys, on a practical level, um, one of the main reasons, again, that Jesus did this miracle was uh, yeah, he was concerned about hungry people, but he really wanted to prepare the disciples for the kind of ministry they'd be involved in. And, you know, about a year, okay, uh, after his departure, they would be involved, listen, in God's food distribution program, feeding hungry people, not with physical bread, of course, but with spiritual food by giving them Jesus, the bread of life. Well, verse 14, we'll end with, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, oh, truth, this is truly the prophet who is come into the world. Well, what is this prophet they're referring to? Well, 
Uh, you don't have to turn there. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, a very famous prophecy that Moses gave to the people and uh, said that the Lord your God will raise up a prophet, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. So they were waiting for this prophet. Did they think he was going to be the Messiah? Probably. But they said, oh, this, this is the prophet Moses talked about. This is the Messiah. Now you think, well, that's a good thing, right? They're recognizing him as Messiah. Not so fast. I think one author summed it up accurately when he said, and I quote, The crowd statement made immediately after Jesus had healed their sick and filled their stomachs revealed, that, revealed what the people were really looking for in a Messiah. They wanted an earthly deliverer, one who would meet all their physical needs, and food and health were at the top of the list, as well as freeing them from the hated yoke of Roman oppression. Thus, they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. With him as their provider, they would never want for food and would have the potential to be healed of every illness. They could march to Jerusalem, overthrow the Romans, and establish the ultimate social welfare state. Jesus, however, refused to be forcibly made king on their selfish and unrepentant terms. Therefore, he sent the disciples away by boat, dispersed the crowd, and withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone, John 6, verse 15 tells us. And guys, that sets the stage for next week's study. Let me end by saying once again that this miracle of feeding the 5,000 was recorded by the Holy Spirit in all four Gospels because, listen, again, he never wants us to forget the lessons that he is teaching us through it and lessons in faith that, will, um, li that, will, uh, that we will need to live, to live our Christianity and to serve our God. And listen, first on the list is that with our God, nothing is impossible. Now, if you're going to live for the Lord and serve him in ministry, you have to know that. Oh, I, I know that. You know it with your head. Do you know it with your heart? You know it in theory. Do you know it in practice? The big difference, okay? Remember what God said to Jeremiah, I, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And Jesus said in Mark 9, he said to a father, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. However, we also read in Scripture, Hebrews 11, verse 6, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. And Matthew 13, 58, which sends chills up and down my spine, now he did not do many mighty works there in his hometown of Nazareth. Why? Because of their unbelief. Sounds like he wanted to. Sure, he certainly had the power to work mighty things. Their unbelief kept him. Could he have overridden their unbelief? Sure, he's God. But he grew up there. They knew him. With knowledge comes responsibility. You know, Henry Blackaby, and we're done. Let me just say this, so we'll close. Henry Blackaby, a great man of God. I really enjoyed his, uh, um, his, his book, um, uh, the Experiencing God. He said uh, on a teaching I was listening to, he said, evangelicals today are conservative in their theology, but are practical atheists. They know theology, but they just don't believe that God is really who he claims to be. Oh, I'm not saying they're not saved. 
But when it comes to the practices of their life, you know, how is my marriage going to get healed? It's so broken. I've spent myself into such a hole, how can I ever get out of it? We've just come from the doctor and he said that our child has an incurable disease. I don't know where to turn now. Really? You turn to God. You turn to God by faith. As we come into the Christmas season, remember as we quoted Gabriel, as, she, as he announced to Mary, she was, going to be, she was chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. She said, I'm a virgin. How can that be? He said, God is going to work it out. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we read, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. I like the Amplified. It capitalizes all the letters in those two words. Now faith. Think about that. Now faith. Faith for right now. Okay? We have faith for the future. Remember Martha? You know, Lazarus, her brother, died. What did she say? Jesus said, Martha, your brother's going to live again. Oh, I know, at the resurrection of the last day. (laughs) We always have faith for the future. What about for the moment? He said, Martha, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life and went and raised her brother. Now faith is the assurance, the confirmation, listen, the title deed, the Greek says, of the things we hope for, the things that God has promised. Guys, faith is believing that you already own what God has promised in his word. Don't don't miss this. This is it. I'll close with this. Faith is believing that you already own what God has promised you in his word, even if you can't yet see it with your eyes or touch it with your hands. So how do you respond? You pray and give what? Thanks. And then the miracle happens. Did you see that in our text? Jesus twice It says, gave, prayed, and gave thanks. And then took the bread, and it multiplied in his hands as he gave it to his disciples. True faith thanks God for what he's promised, even before you see it as a reality. He's promised it. It's yours. You thank him. By faith, you receive it, and it will be yours. He will give it to you if he's promised it. If he hasn't promised it, he might, but he's not obligated to. But if he's given you a promise in his word, if you repent of your sins and receive Jesus Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior, I don't care how bad your life has been, you will have everlasting life. That's a promise. Thank him for it and receive it by faith. Next week, we will continue, God willing, and we will pick it up with a story that I think has got a lot of lessons that the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us, and we'll see that next time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the principles and things you teach us in your word, for us to, principles for us to live by. And Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing our time in this study for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.